Hi, welcome to Delvecast. This is Scott. So today I wanted to do something that was inspired by Ben Milton of Questing Beast, where he looked at the AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, he did a live stream of that a couple of days ago, and he did a couple of hours just reading through, and I think his goal is to read through the entire thing cover to cover. Now, I am not going to be doing the same thing exactly, but I did want to go through the 4th edition Dungeon Master's Guide, because it's something that I find to be a very good book, really useful, and not just for 4th edition, but for other editions too. And I think a lot of people also think that. So I'm going to be going through it, maybe not word for word, but every page, taking a look at what it says, reading out some excerpts, and just discussing it a bit. And again, I probably am not going to get through, in fact I definitely won't get through the whole thing this time. So, if you haven't seen the 4th edition Dungeon Master's Guide, it has a really cool cover, and it's a red dragon that is staring into a crystal ball, and within that crystal ball is reflected the two heroes that are on the front of the player's handbook. And this harkens back to the um, Errol Otis art on the uh, original BX books, where you had the basic and the expert set reflecting each other um, in a kind of uh, parallax effect. So I really like the art. On the back you have half a cover of art, which is a floating moat um, with a, a pretty cool castle on top of it, kind of a ruined castle. And it reads, Great heroes need great adventures. The world has fallen into darkness, but great rewards await those brave adventurers willing to face the terrible dangers ahead. This core rulebook for the Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game holds everything a dungeon master needs to create memorable adventures and grand campaigns to challenge bold adventurers. The Dungeon Master's Guide features a 4th edition game rules and guidelines for creating and running encounters, adventures and campaigns. It offers a wealth of advice to new and experienced dungeon masters and includes essential game rules for awarding experience, distributing treasure, creating non-player characters and adding mighty artefacts to the game. Um, so right off the bat, you see that the first sentence is the world has fallen into darkness, reflecting the points of light, implied campaign setting that eventually became um, the, uh, I can't remember the name of it now, Nentia Vale. Apparently I just had a bit of a brain fart there. So let's open it up and take a look. So, the role-playing core, core rules, James Wyatt. We have some credits So um, for the design team. So, Rob Hinesu, Andy Collins, James Wyatt. Um, the develop first final development strike team. So, uh, Mike Mills, Bill uh, Slavijek. Is that how you pronounce it? And James Wyatt. Uh, and then it goes through a bunch of others. So, in terms of... Interior illustrations, there's quite a few. Um, Rob Alexander, Steve Argyle, Wayne England, Jason Engel, 
David Griffith, Espen uh, Gruntergen, Gruntergen, apologies for that, Brian Hagen, Ralph Horsley, um, he's actually from my city, Howard Lyon, Lee Moyer, William O'Connor, Wayne Reynolds, Dan Scott, Ron Spears, Chris Stevens, Anne Stokes, and Eva Wilderman, with cartography by Mike Schley. And it's uh, dedicated to the memory of E. Gary Gygax. So the first real page that we get is chapter one, how to be a DM, and we've got some incredible Ralph Horsley art here. Ralph Horsley art's very kinetic. And he plays a lot with light and shadow. So we've got adventurers venturing into a cave and being met with what looks to be a horde of goblins who are waiting to strike. Kind of that potential kinetic energy. Most games have a winner and a loser, but the Dungeons and Dragons role-playing game is fundamentally a cooperative game. The dungeon master plays the roles of the antagonists in the adventure, but the DM isn't playing against the player characters, PCs. Although the DM represents all the PC's opponents and adversaries, monsters, non-player characters, um, NPCs, traps and the like, he or she doesn't want the player characters to fail any more than the other players do. The players all cooperate to achieve success for their characters. The DM's goal is to make the success taste its sweetest by presenting challenges that are just hard enough that the other players have to work to overcome them but not so hard that they leave all the characters dead at the table having fun is the most important goal more important than the character's success in an adventure it's just as vital for everyone at the table to cooperate towards making the game fun for everyone as it is for the player characters to cooperate within the adventure this chapter includes the following sections. The gaming group, here you learn what components you need to play the D&D game. The players, understand your players, help them to assemble as a successful party of player characters and run a game they want to play. The dungeon master, understand the role of a DM in the game and what kind of game you want to make. And table rules, consider game rules you should agree on. Guidelines for you and the players' behaviour during the game. So again, this really sets out what 4E was designed to do. It's about heroic and super heroic adventures where you want the players, you want the characters to succeed, but barely. And there isn't really talk about characters, you know, dying. You you kind of discouraged to do to, to kill off characters. Now whether that's a good thing or not, I'll let that leave that for, for you to decide. So the first section is gaming group, and this tells you what you need to actually run a game of Dungeons and Dragons. So players, so it says six people in a group, the rules of the game assume that you're playing in a group of six people, the DM and five other players. More or fewer than six, playing with four or six other players is easy with minor adjustments. Groups that are small or larger require you to alter some of the rules in this book to account for the difference. With the with only two or three characters in a party, you don't have the different roles covered. And it's harder to get through combat encounters, even if the encounter is scaled down for your smaller group. So you can see that it is optimised for six players, um, but it can be played with fewer. And then it goes on to the role of the Dungeon Master, so what do they do? 
who should do it, um, and a bit about Dungeon Masters partnering, trading off, and changing. We have a bit of information on a you need a place to play, uh, the rule books needed, the dice, paper and pencils, battle grid, DM screen, miniatures, character sheets, snacks, uh, computers, PDAs, that dates it, smartphones, and digital cameras. That's interesting. If you're on a laptop computer, a personal digital assistant, PDA, or smartphone, you can use it to keep notes and track items instead of paper and pencils. Players can use their computers to store and update copies of their character sheet in a number of file formats, and you can keep notes about your campaign and encounters you build. You can also use digital camera, a, a digital camera as an easy way to keep track of a fight that you have to stop in the middle of. We had to do that quite a few times. Of course, fights can run on for quite a while, so if the time's up, you want to be taking a picture and seeing where everything belonged so you can come back to it easily. You could also snap pictures of the game in progress to post in your blog or website to share with a member of the of the group or their friends. So if you remember with 4th edition, this is when they really introduced the digital tools to the D&D game. Um, it was the first edition to really do digital. And while it seems a little bit, um, I guess, old-fashioned now with Twitch streaming and the like, really it started with 4th edition. And then it ends with D&D Insider, saying that you can enhance your game with a subscription to D&D Insider. And then the last essential component is fun. Every person playing the game is responsible for the fun of the game. Everyone speeds the game along, heightens the drama, helps sets how much role-playing the group is comfortable with, and brings the game world to life with their imaginations. Everyone should treat each other with respect and consideration too. Personal squabbles and fights among the characters get in the way of the fun. Remember that the right way to play D&D is the way that you and your players agree on and enjoy. If everyone comes to the table prepared to contribute to the game, everyone has fun. The next section is the players. And this is a really interesting section because what it does, it splits out player motivations. So it really gives a almost a demographic run-through of different kinds of players. It puts them into different pots. And I believe this all came from a survey that Wizards ran. So you've got things like actor. The actor likes to pretend to, pre pretend to be her character. She emphasizes character development that has nothing to do with numbers or powers, trying to make her character seem to be a real person in the fantasy world. She enjoys interacting with the rest of the group, with characters and monsters in the game world, and with the fantasy world in general by speaking in character and describing her character's actions in the first person. So then it goes on to say what they like to do, and then how the DM should engage them. So, for instance, an actor provides PC background, emphasising personality, plays according, according to her character's motivations, prefers scenes where she can portray her character, often prefers social encounters to fights. And you can engage the actor by facilitating her PC's personality and background development, 
providing role-play encounters, emphasizing her character's personality at times, recruiting her to help create narrative campaign elements. It's very story gamey that part. It's interesting. And then finally, be sure that the actor doesn't bore the other players by talking to everyone and everything. Justify disruption actions as being in character. So that's the classic, well, that's just what my character would do. So it goes through a few of these explorers. So they want to see the world. They want to play with things. Um, they're kind of close to being a storyteller and an actor. Um, so you, you want to reward their curiosity. Um, but you want to make sure that they're not using the knowledge of the the game itself to um, to their own advantage. Instigator, so they, they these people like to make things happen. They make they take risks. They're part of the driving force of the group, but they could easily get the group killed. Power gamer, so obviously these are the optimizers, the min maxers. So you you're encouraged to be giving them desired magic items as adventure hooks and stressing rewards such as quest xp um, but you shouldn't um, you make you should make sure that they don't try to take more than their share of the treasure and treat the other characters as his lackeys it's a difficult thing isn't it because you have to do that in a way that you're not necessarily just flat out saying don't treat the other characters as your lackeys. You want to do it in the narrative. You have Slayer, who, again, is a, a bit of a min-maxer, but is more battle-orientated. The storyteller, um, who just likes the narrative of, of the game. Um, dramatic scenes, recurring characters. Um, they work hard to make their character fit the story. I think I fit a lot into the storyteller. Thinker, so about careful choices, challenging them with puzzles. Watcher, so this is a casual player who's going to be watching the game. They want to be part of more of this social element. So these are the people who could quite easily get distracted by watching TV or playing video games while you're, uh, while you're playing. Um, these people could often be mediators, so they can help calm disputes. Um, but they might need a bit of prompting as you go on. So then it goes into building a party. So how you cover the character roles. So it goes through what happens if the party doesn't have certain roles. So defender, for example. It says without defender, the party's controller is practically particularly vulnerable and the strikers might have to sacrifice some mobility. The leader can take on some of the defender's roles. Enemy soldiers are more successful at controlling the battlefield, and enemy brutes can become particularly dangerous to the characters. And it goes through, no leader, no striker, no controller. It says that the absence of a striker is perhaps the easiest to cover. The defender and controller might need to find ways to increase their damage output to bring monsters down faster. So this really plays up to the tactical elements of the game, that some people don't really like that much, but some people really do. All the while you get these little boxes, tips from the pros, and it goes a little bit into um, some, well, tips from the pros. <laughs> so this one here is the story in the player handbook about the dragonborn paladin Dona, who carries a piece of the shell he hatched from, from as a reminder of his heritage. 
came from exactly this sort of player background creation. The player reading the then current description of Dragonborn exclaimed, I hatched. Can I carry a piece of my eggshell with me? Thus was born an interesting cultural detail about Dragonborn in that game world. So this is where it comes onto the party background and relationships and siblings. This tips box brings up a very interesting and kind of, um, I guess, old school way of, of looking at character backgrounds and development in the here it was in the game that they decided on some aspect of their background rather than writing a full background and playing with that they are it's been a little bit more emergent so that's quite interesting campaign details um so just connections to the campaign itself and then we go into the dungeon master so this goes through dm style so what's the right style? What's the right way to DM? That depends on your DMing style and the motivations of your players. Consider your players' tastes, your style, table rules, excuse me, the type of game you want to run in your campaign. So it gives a little table of style considerations, so gritty or cinematic, medieval, fantasy or anachronistic, silly or serious, lighthearted or intense, bold or curious, and so on. And then it goes on to kinds of games. Several key decisions define the kind of game that you and your players have. Many D&D games are single DM ongoing campaigns in which the DM orchestrates a series of adventures that link together to form an epic story arc. But successful D&D games can have multiple DMs be episodic rather than having a campaign arc and can even be one-shot games or convention events. These game models have different strengths and weaknesses, and it goes through each of the strengths and weaknesses for each of those. So having multiple DMs, um, having episodic games, having ongoing games, or one-shots. So everything up to now has been really neutral to whatever role set you're playing with. You could use this in, in whatever fancy role-playing game that you want, really, or any D&D edition, at least. And then it's got some table rules, so things like having respect for each other, be there and be on time, distractions, uh, food. This is the second time in 14 pages that food has been mentioned, by the way. Character names. This is cool. Agree on some ground rules for naming characters. In a group consisting of Sithis, Travok, Anastriana and Chiron, the human fighter named Bob II sticks out especially when he is identical to Bob the First, who was killed by kobolds. If everyone takes a light-hearted approach to names, that's fine. If the group would rather take the characters and their names a little more seriously, urge Bob's player to come up with a better name. And then it says how to deal with missing players. Um, running multiple characters. And setting expectations around player talk at the table. Even going down to things like Expectations around rolling dice, so whether you roll it behind the screen, whether you roll it where the players can see, rolling attacks and damage, metagame thinking. So it says metagame thinking means thinking about the game as a game. It's like a character in a movie knowing he's in a movie and acting accordingly. This dragon must be a few levels higher than we are, a player might say. The DM would throw such a 
DM wouldn't throw such a tough monster at us. Or you might hear, the reload text spent a lot of time on that door. Let's search it again. Discourage this by giving players a gentle verbal reminder. But what do your characters think? Or you could curb a metagame thinking by asking for perception checks when there's nothing to see. Or setting up an encounter that is much higher level than the characters are. Just to make just to make sure you give them a way to avoid it or retreat. So we're on to chapter two, which is running the game. And this goes through um, preparing and getting started, mode of the game, narration, pacing, props, dispensing information, improvising, ending a session, troubleshooting, teaching the game. So this is, again, it's all agnostic to whatever edition that you're playing. So preparing the one-hour rule of thumb. Any game session has 15 to 30 minutes of easing into the game and 15 to 30 minutes of wrap-up time. Most groups get through about one encounter in an hour of play. So if you play one encounter, it usually takes about two hours for a game session. If you play two encounters, it takes about three hours. So that goes into preparation time for one hour, two hours, and three hours. So this is really useful. It says one hour preparation, select a published adventure to run, flip through the adventure, keeping in mind the length of time you're going to play in a game session, figure out how likely it is your players will play each encounter, prioritize them as definite, possible, or unlikely. Carefully read each encounter you've marked as definite. Review the monsters in that encounter, including their special abilities and tactical information. Create some tactical notes if you have to. Know any special rules that apply to terrain in the encounter. And then you consider how each of these definite encounters relates to the particular motivations of your players. If you have one or more players who are left in the lurch by encounters you have planned, think about the elements you could add to the encounter to hook those players in. For example, if the nice encounter don't encounters don't give your actor player a chance to roleplay, find a way to inject some negotiation to the start of the encounter. For an encounter that focuses more on interaction, make notes about the relevant NPCs in the encounter, their motivations and goals. Pick a quirk for each important NPC to help the characters stand out in the player's mind, focusing on something that's easy to play. So then on each tier of preparation, it adds new points. So for a two-hour preparation, it's you're reviewing those possible encounters. And three-hour preparation is you're skimming the unlikely encounters and you might be creating new encounters um, specifically for one player. And then it goes into four-hour preparation. It also has a little section on no time to prepare. And it says, sometimes you have no time to get ready for your game. Check out the sections on improvising, page 28, random dungeons, page 190, and random encounters, page 193, for ideas of what to do. And there's a box. Creating an adventure in an hour. If you don't want to use public published adventure, it's possible to create an adventure with no more than one hour of preparation. Choose a dungeon map, section off an area that contains a limited number of potential encounters. That railroad, railroads your players somewhat, but they'll forgive you if it means the difference between playing this week or not. <laughs> That's quite a good point. Use the sample encounter groups in the monster manual as well as sample traps and hazards in this book. 
And then getting started. So this is actually settling into the session. It's giving a recap. Um, and it's delegating. So you shouldn't be afraid to delegate some of the job of running the game to your players. If there are parts of the game you find burdensome, assign them to players who enjoy them. If you don't want to break your narrative stride by looking up a rule, designate another player to be the rulebook reference expert. If you don't like tracking initiative, have another player do it for you. Players can make the DM's life easier in a lot of little ways, from never making you pay for pizza, third food reference, to helping to flesh out the background of the campaign world. You have enough to do. Delegate what you can. So... We go on to modes of the game. So it says, over the course of a session of D&D, the game shifts in and out of five basic modes. Setup, exploration, conversation, encounter, and passing time. These five modes are all also five different kinds of tasks or activities the characters engage in during their adventures. So it goes into a little bit about each of those. So exploration, so describing the environment and listening, narrating the results of the character's actions, conversation, encounter. Encounters are an exciting part of the D&D game. They have tension and urgency about them and a chance of failure. They involve lots of dice rolling, uh, often in the form of attack rolls and strategic thinking. They give almost every kind of player something to enjoy. And then passing, passing time. And then it's uh, the narration section. So these are all the kinds of styles of narration for a DM. And again, this is all really useful stuff. Lead by example. When you role play and narrate with enthusiasm, you add energy to the game and draw the players out. Encourage them to follow your lead and describe the actions in the same vivid way. Then incorporate the narration into your accounts of their successes and failures. So it just goes into brevity. Don't describe everything. Don't over-describe. Don't omit important details. Don't give only the most important information all the time. Um, create an atmosphere. Uh, have a cinematic style. Uh, a bit about suspense. Uh, how you should portray monsters and NPCs. A bit about pacing, so building anticipation, finding the fun, so don't make players search for the fun in exploration mode when the players can't find an option that leads to an action, the romantic tension dissipates and the game becomes a slog or stalemate. Make sure that you give players enough clues or ways to find clues to solve puzzles and overcome obstacles. So we've got a on taking breaks as well at the end of an encounter the tension you've been building dissipates until you start building it up again if you and your players need to need a break take one at this natural point of pause use the restroom eat fourth reference on food and get fresh drinks let the players and yourself catch their breath so there's a bit about props so using battle maps miniatures handouts music lighting candles and things like that. Next section on dispensing information. 
So how should you be giving out that information based on skill checks? So around passive skill checks. So making a list of everybody's passive skill checks so you know what they're probably going to see just by glancing. Informing players. So it goes through a few uh, things like gotcha abilities. So pay attention to monster abilities that change the basic rules and tactics of combat and give players the cues they need to recognise them. Describe, describe the abilities it might appear in a game world and then describe it in game terms to make it clear. For example, if the characters are fighting a pit fiend whose aura of fire deals fire damage to creatures within five squares, you might tell the players before their characters come in range the heat emanates, emanating from the devil is intense, even at this distance. You know that getting within five squares of it is going to burn you. So that's kind of mixing the real-world narration with gamist narration, and I'm not a huge fan of that, really. I think players should be able to get that from saying there's some great heat emanating from the devil or the fiend. Goes through game states, conditions, so how you describe some of those things. And then we're going to the improvising section. So it gives you aids for improvising, so lists of names, um, keeping the particular tastes and motivations of your players in mind when you're creating encounters. Creating mini dungeons, so keeping a small supply of encounter area maps at hand, not just little dungeons. So a ruined mill house with its cellars, a jailhouse, or a cave behind a waterfall also unusual wilderness and urban areas. Combined with encounters you design, these maps can provide a whole session of adventure if things go awry or you just run out of time and prepare uh, one week. Sorry, to prepare one week. It's got a bit about saying yes. So just the usual improvisation methodology. And on troubleshooting, so <laughs> the first thing on troubleshooting is character death. Don't ever punish a character for the player's behaviour or some personal grudge. That's probably the quickest way to undermine your player's trust in you as a DM, as a fair arbiter of the rules. Let characters face the consequences of their stupid actions, but make sure you give enough cues for the players to recognise stupid actions and give the players enough opportunity to take back rash decisions so it's all about trying to be fair when a character does die it's usually up to players as a group to decide what happens some players are perfectly happy to roll up a new character especially when they're eager to try out new options don't penalize a new character in the group the new member should start the same level as the rest of the party and have similar gear you might want to discourage players from bringing a clone of the dead character in as the new character adding two or second on the character's name, altering it slightly, but otherwise leaving the character unchanged. It's obviously artificial and interferes with the player's sense of a fantasy world as a believable and coherent place. And goes a little bit into, usually a dead character means that the party has to take an eight hour rest at least to use the raised dead ritual and rest afterwards. 
By epic level, many characters can return from death in the middle of combat by a variety of means. At that point, death can be little more than a speed bump, but the consequences of failure can be much worse than death. As you can imagine, with 4th edition and really to an extent from 3rd edition, you're putting a lot into your characters. And once you get to the epic level, so above level 20, having a character die will mean creating an entirely new character at level 20 or beyond, which is, I mean, it's quite a lot of work. So I think it makes sense for characters to pretty much be almost invincible at that time. And you want to make up for it with narrative decisions. It's got to be about fixing your mistakes. So if you made a bad rules call, if your encounter's too hard, so giving characters escape routes, making intentionally bad choices for the monsters, forget to roll to see if monsters recharge their powers, that's forget in scare quotes. No, I don't really agree with that. Hard encounter, too easy, characters get too powerful. And a bit about scaling group size. Problem players. So, obviously, how you deal with problem players. So, setting expectations straight out of the bat. Dealing with out-of-control players. People often play D&D because it lets them, through their characters, do things they can't do in real life. Fight monsters, cast spells, defeat evil so that, they, so that good can triumph. Some players play because D&D lets them run wild, wreaking havoc in towns and going on what amounts to crime sprees or betraying their allies. What they want in the game has nothing to do with heroic adventure, but with using the game rules to act out antisocial fantasies. Talk to your players, reopening the conversation about the kind of game you want to play. If it's just one player causing the trouble, it's perfectly appropriate to issue an ultimatum. If an out-of-control player wants to continue playing with the group, he has to stop being disruptive and play as part of the team. Uh, prima donna players. So players feeling that the game should centre around them. Rules lawyers. Uh, a bit about balancing player tastes. And a section on teaching the game. So if you want to get new friends or a spouse or children into the game, how do you teach it? So how do you describe certain things? So how do you describe D&D? How do you describe the core mechanic? Um, what are class and levels and hit points? It's all really useful. And I think that with tabletop role-playing being so um, pervasive now, that actually looking through these could be really useful for some people. I'm going to be wrapping up here um, before we move on to the Chapter 3, Combat Encounters, um, because we're 35 minutes in. So I hope that's been a, a good look, at least at uh, the start of the Dungeon Master's Guide. So far it's been completely neutral to additions, um, but it does get into specific 4th edition stuff. So I'll do a, an episode some other time covering some more of this. So thanks. I'll speak to you again soon.